0: Hey folks, Jr. back for another episode of Echoes of Shannon Street Case File. It's going to be episode 71. It should be left that way. Continuing the follow-up investigation. Most of this is being done by security squad, some of it by the Violent Crimes Unit. Alright folks, let's, uh, let's go on and get going this investigation. After arriving at the toxicology lab... The writer received a phone call from security offices advising him to bring the above mentioned evidence to the security squad office as the toxicology lab was not going to process this evidence. The writer, after arriving in the security squad office, did secure the above mentioned evidence in the conference equipment room until which time it was determined what agency was going to receive and process the above-mentioned evidence. I'm sure that's going to come down to TBI or FBI, and I don't imagine FBI is going to, going to want to look at any of these items, if I had to guess. Monday, January 24, 1983, the writer was instructed to proceed to the toxicology lab University of Tennessee and pick up the evidence that was left with the toxicology lab. Lord, I don't know who was typing this, but the transcriptionist must have been off this day. On Monday, January 24, 1983, 8.50 a.m., the writer went to the toxicology lab and received the following evidence from Paulette Sutton and Ann Fowler. One vantage cigarette pack, five bullets, and one cigarette butt found in the Northeast room, bedroom, at 2239 Shannon. One cool pack, empty. One black billfold. One black... That says flapper, but that should be a slapper. <laughs> I don't even want to go there. But that should be a, a slapper, folks. That's that's usually made of leather, and it's got... Filled with sand or... Some other hard material, police carry it in their belt, and it's used to strike people. It's an impact weapon police use when they don't have their nightstick available. One South Central Bell small phone book, one brown handle knife, one spent shell found in a pool of blood, one union pen, one North Precinct name tag. Name plate, two pins or name tags, one partial name tag, 1973, two pieces of broken watch, one MPD pin. All these items were found in the living room of 2239 Shannon. One 12 gauge shotgun, which was used by patrolman H.A. Ray, one nightstick, one kale light, one transit. Level two battery covers, one Memphis Police Department badge number 8480. I'm sorry, that may be 3480. It should actually read badge number 480. That was Hester's badge number. Two radio batteries and one Molarola handy talkie from 2239 Shannon. One 38 caliber revolver belonging to Patrolman Swill. 138 caliber revolver belonging to Troman R.S. Hester. All the above-mentioned articles were taken from the security squad office and secured until they were taken to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation Lab at Donaldson, Tennessee. On Monday, January 24, 1983, 2 p.m., Ann Fowler of the toxicology lab was contacted, at which time she gave the writer the following list of blood types. Patrolman R.S. Hester, blood type, group O, RHD positive. Patroman Ray Swill, blood type, group A, RHD positive. Patroman Turner, group B, RHD positive. Patroman Akins, group O, RHD negative. Patroman Ray, group A, RHD positive. Lindbergh Sanders, group O, RHD positive. Larnell Sanders, Group O, RHD positive. Michael Coleman, Group O, RHD positive. Earl Thomas, Group A, Subgroup B, RHD positive. David Lee Jordan, Group B, RHD positive. Cassell Harris, Group B, RHD positive. Andrew Houston, Group A, RHD positive. Ann Fowler advised that the above information was for the security squad records and shouldn't be given to any other agency. Tuesday, January 25, 1983, after it was determined that all the evidence in this case would be taken to the Tennessee Bureau of Identification Lab, the writer went to the toxicology lab and received from Ann Fowler and Paulette Sutton the following list of evidence. Whole blood samples, sperm samples, dry stained samples, and wet-stained samples which had been obtained by the toxicology lab. The above-mentioned evidence was taken to the security office where they were either refrigerated or frozen until at which time they were to be delivered to the TBI lab. It should be pointed out that some of the evidence received was dated 13083. Or maybe that's 12083. However, all the evidence was obtained from the toxicology lab on December. Correction, January 15, 1983. I don't understand when you're typing something and you realize you made a mistake, why didn't you just leave out December if that's not correct? I'm just wondering if all the transcriptionists were on strike because this is just, it's amazing, A, a file of this importance and it's just, Chock full of typing errors. On Tuesday, January 25 twenty five, nineteen eighty-three, one twenty PM, the writer went to the University of Tennessee Pathology Lab and obtained scalp hair from patrolman R S Hester. This small tub this small tube my god they did it to me again. This small tube T U B E which contained scalp hair of Patrolman Hester, was taken to the Memphis Police Department property room and tagged under number 8313712. Scalp hair of Patrolman Hester was then checked out of the property room and taken to the security office and secured, to which time it was delivered to TBI. Okay, folks, this part here, this interview that they're getting ready to conduct, This is that lady that was was at a job interview and started talking about being at 2239 Shannon Street and with other people and having seen people tortured and whatnot. So, just give you a little backstory on who this lady is. The writer talked with Edie Virginia Williams, female black 20, 1786 Chelsea. After advising Ms. Williams as the reason I needed to talk to her, she seemed very reluctant to talk and made the statement, I thought the Shannon Street was closed. I went on to explain to her that after the police department received information, it is our responsibility to try to check it out and interview people to see if the information is correct. I did not advise her how the information had been contained concerning her. Had been contained... I guess that's supposed to be, had been obtained. Oh, my goodness. But after explaining a little more to her, she agreed to answer questions. I asked her if she knew Lindbergh Sanders or if she was a cousin of Lindbergh Sanders, and she stated she had met him on one occasion through a friend of hers, Earl Thomas. She said that Earl Thomas was one of the ones in the house and that they went to school together. She was asked if she knew of anything about their religion and she stated only what Earl Thomas told her in regards to not being able to eat pork, their beliefs in marijuana and wine. She was asked if she had ever been to Lindbergh Sanders' house and her answer was no. Well, of course it was no. It's amazing what people want their five seconds of fame so they go around shooting their mouth off. I asked her if she'd ever seen or heard of anybody being tortured at Lindbergh Sanders' house, and and her answer was no. Well, that's a good answer. At this time, she made the statement to the effect that Earl Thomas and the others were dead, and it should be left that way. She knew nothing about anything that had occurred on Shannon and did not wish to answer any further questions. At this time, I thanked her and left 1786 Chelsea. Hi, right, folks. That's going to wrap up this episode. You, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of this follow-up work investigators are having to do is to follow up on phone calls being received. People are calling in saying so-and-so said they'd been at the house and seen this and seen that. And so the police are just wasting man hours following these this up. But they have to. They don't have any choice. You can't just ignore it. Even though you know nine times out of ten, or actually 99 times out of a hundred, people are just shooting their mouth off. Why in the world do you want to brag about, yeah, I was over at 2239 Shannon, I was watching people get tortured. Just ridiculous. But anyways, police have to do it. They don't have any choice. They have to follow all this up. And just... Just simply amazing. But anyways, uh, now the next few episodes, we're gonna I'm gonna do one on the director Holtz press conference that he conducted. Actually, he did two. He did a statement and then he did an actual news conference. I'm gonna we're gonna try to do that. Also, I want to do one on St. Jude. I want you to see how St. Jude ran. Now that was with a different mayor and a different police director. Buddy Chapman was the director then, and Fife Chandler was the mayor. You're gonna see, you're gonna see what a real hostage situation, how it's handled. And after we do that episode, we'll be able to compare the two and you can it's gonna give you a better understanding of of how politics played such a significant role in Shannon Street. Well, all right, folks, that's, uh, that's all we're going to do today. I do appreciate y'all tuning in with me. We'll get back together again in a few days. We'll hit those episodes, and we've got a few more. Till then, folks, I will see you down the road.